Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. We've got something a little different for you this episode. Last month, the UQPPE Society had the pleasure of hosting a lecture by the Honourable George Brandis, KC, former Senator for Queensland, Attorney General for Australia and Australian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. George Brandis has now left public life to take up a post lecturing in national security at the Australian National University. Before travelling down to ANU, however, he was generous enough to engage us with a lecture and to sit down with Will and Oliver for a podcast discussion as well. We'll be releasing that discussion in our next episode. But in the meantime, we thought we'd share our recording of George's lecture, entitled Reflections on Politics and Diplomacy. I found this a really engaging listen, and it works very well in audio form. George shares his general thoughts on Australia's democratic system and his advice for future politicians, and also shares a good deal of exclusive anecdotes about the inner workings of Australian politics along the way. This episode comes in two halves. The lecture itself ends at around the 45-minute mark, after which we've included half an hour of the best questions from our audience Q&A. Feel free to tune out at any point, of course, but I definitely recommend listening to the whole podcast, because some of the juiciest topics, including George's takes on the Tory leadership contest, the future of the Liberal Party, and Scott Morrison's secret ministry scandal, come up in the Q&A. A few general announcements before we get underway. On Wednesday the 12th of October, the UQPPE Society will be holding a really important event, our annual general meeting. This is where we get together and reflect on the year we've had and elect our new executive, who will decide the agenda for the year to come. We need to meet a minimum number of attendees for these elections to be legitimate according to our constitution, and the AGM is also just a really fun time. It's free pizza, good company, and a great chance to engage with the society and make new connections. The AGM will start from 5.30pm at Hawken Engineering Building, room 50T203, and that's next Wednesday the 12th of October. All positions are openly democratically elected, so if you're interested, please feel free to apply for anything but we're in particular need of candidates for the VP of Marketing and the VP of Diversity and Wellbeing. If you're interested in applying for these positions or more, check out the link in this episode's description or head to the UQPPE Society's Facebook page to find out more. Another deadline that's closing soon is submission for this year's print issue of Statecraft magazine, Pillar Talk's sister publication. Any submissions received before the end of October will be considered for publication in our print edition and go in the running to win prizes of up to $100. We accept punchy opinion pieces, in-depth analyses, creative writing, essays that you're proud of, whatever you like. Submissions can be sent to publications.uqppes at gmail.com.au and you can find out more or read our other stuff at medium.com forward slash statecraft. Now, housekeeping aside, I bring you the Honourable George Brandis with the Statecraft Winter Lecture, Reflections on Politics and Diplomacy. All right, so thank you all for coming to the Statecraft Winter Lecture, hosted by the UQ's Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. As always, we'll always first give a plug out for the society and say we obviously have events like this. So if you want to become a member, you can do that online or um, see me afterwards and you'll get free access to all these kind of events. Um, we also have a sponsor for this event, Adept Economics. So we're thankful to the economic consultancy firm Adept Economics for sponsoring the event. 
and a message from their director, Gene Tunney, says he appreciates the close connection between economics and international relations from his time at the Federal Treasury. Adept Economics recognises the Honourable George Brandis has done great service to Australia, both overseas and domestically, and says he deserves your close attention in this highly anticipated lecture. And for more information, visit adepteconomics.com.au. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker for tonight, speaking on the topic Reflections on Politics and Diplomacy. George Brandis is a former Senator for Queensland, former Attorney General, and former High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He is also currently Professor of National Security at Australian National University. Well, thank you very much indeed, Oliver. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so I understand that uh, the engagement is for an hour, and uh, I was asked to make some remarks uh, and then to leave time for questions. Is that the understanding? Good. Well, thank you. And uh, I must say, I was rather taken aback and flattered by the rather grand nature of this lecture, a lecture on statecraft, and uh, thought that I might be able to have any useful reflections on statecraft. But I think it's a good idea for this course to concentrate on that concept of statecraft because what it draws our attention to, calls our attention to, is the practice of politics. In university political science and government faculties, and uh, I understand this, uh, the PPE course is under the auspices of the economics department, the focus is on the analysis of politics. To focus on statecraft reminds us the practice of politics is a distinct activity, as everyone since Aristotle has recognised. But if we trace the history of writing about politics since people have written about politics in 4th century BC, Athens, really, if you look at the classical writers and the medieval scholars, what they were describing was systems, and they were describing values, both secular and Catholic values, as to the right mode, the just mode of governance. It wasn't until we got to the Florentines of the Quattrocento, and Machiavelli in particular, that we find a writer who actually asked the question, what do political leaders actually do? What motivates them? What shapes their conduct? And drawing upon both the sources of the Italian city-states of his time and a lot of examples from the Roman Republic, Machiavelli in two famous books, The Prince and the Discourses, actually for the first time, and quite shockingly, by the way, to the late medieval, early Renaissance conscience, looked at politics not as an ethical activity, but as a practical activity. And he asked the question, what do princes do? Why do they do it? How do, in other words, how do politicians behave and why do they behave the way they do? In the centuries since, many other scholars and writers and commentators have asked that question. In the late 20th century, uh, I don't know if in your course you've ever come across the work of Michael Oakeshott, the great English conservative philosopher, but his book on human conduct is as instructive and, uh, and, and also his essay, Rationalism in Politics, 
are as instructive and elegant a treatment of the unique and special nature of political conduct as you're likely to find. Now, I'm a bit abashed about calling this a lecture. Um, well, I'll call it a talk. This talk is not about political philosophy. It's not about comparative government, the comparison, the similarities and differences of different systems of government. Nor is it about political science, which I take to be the discipline of subjecting and analysing political behaviour by empirical means, in particular, the behaviour of large populations, the electorate in other words, and the way in which populations move, decide, act when faced with political choices. I'm going to take your lecture as it, at its word and talk about statecraft, that is, the way in which politics is practised. And I'm going to focus, drawing, of course, on my own experience, primarily on the democracies, primarily on domestic politics, but making occasional references to my experience in international politics in the last four years as well. And I want to make 15 points, one, one more than President Wilson, and I will skip through them very fast to leave plenty of time for questions. The first observation to make is that politicians are people too. So often forgotten in the drama of events or the writing about the grand sweep of history, first and foremost, the conduct of politicians is a department of human conduct. And human po uh, politicians are no different in their conduct from any other human beings. They have the same frailties, they have the same vanities, they have the same virtues, they have the same vices. And it is remarkable how many politicians, we can think of Prime Minister Johnson in the United Kingdom uh, at the moment as a very recent and good example of this, have come crashing to the ground not because of any huge political issue or, or public policy dispute or constitutional crisis, but simply because they have succumbed to human frailty. But there is this difference. Although politicians are human beings just like anyone else, they work in a very unusual environment, an environment in which they are under constant pressure, in which they are under constant scrutiny, in which the very definition of success of both their opponents and those who scrutinise them professionally, that is journalists, the very definition of success is to destroy them, at least reputationally and professionally. So you have politicians with the same frailties, people with the same frailties and vulnerabilities of anyone else in this extremely artificial and very pressured environment. And we should never, ever, ever forget that. So we're not talking as Plato did about philosopher kings. 
we're talking about people like you and me who place themselves or find themselves in this unusual environment. I remember during the, the gringolade of the government of Theresa May a couple of years ago, when the House of Commons was in a complete mess and nobody knew what was going to happen with Brexit, a junior diplomat said to me, how, do we, how on earth are we meant to judge what's going to happen in the House of Commons today? It was one of the big votes. And I said, and perhaps the remark was a little bit twee, but I, essentially I meant it. But to understand what will happen in the House of Commons, you need to master two books. You need to master the standing orders of the House of Commons because that will tell you what the rules are. And you need to master the complete works of Shakespeare because that will tell you how human beings behave in circumstances of great pressure in circumstances of huge ambition and huge rivalry. The second point follows from the first. And it's a point I think some, sometimes lost on professional academics who teach politics. That politics is not an intellectual activity. The study of politics is an intellectual activity. But the practice of politics although there is an intellectual component to it, when, for example, a cabinet might be discussing which option to choose among an alternative range of different policy proposals, there is an intellectual element to it. But essentially, the driver of politics is not an intellectual driver, but much more atavistic instincts, much more human instincts, like ambition and rivalry and vanity. Just as politics is not primarily an intellectual activity, nor is it primarily a rational activity. Again, there are important elements of rationality to the practice of politics. But there is also a very deep irrationality to a lot of what happens as well, all derived from the very first point I made, that politics is about the way human beings behave under pressure and not all the choices and not all the consequences that, that are produced by those choices are therefore rational. Something I always try to explain to Malcolm Turnbull and Malcolm who's a very, very rational man could never quite accustom himself to the fact that he might have polished a, an area of policy to perfection, and yet the same people who were saying one thing about his policy last week were saying the very opposite this week when he'd accommodated their concerns. And he'd say to me, George, this is irrational. And I said, of course it is. They're out to get you. I mean, stop rationalising this. This is not rational. This is people behaving because they are motivated to do so for reasons that include the rational, but are beyond the rational and might seem to the victim of their behaviour deeply irrational indeed. An important dimension of irrationality in politics is what I, you might call tribalism. Politics is organised around 
largely organised around political parties still. And political parties are like tribes. They have tribal loyalties. They have uh, tribal instincts. They sometimes engage, as Boris Johnson said about his own backbench recently, in herd behaviour. These are not clinical, rational choices, but they are very human choices. The fourth observation I wanted to share with you applies particularly to the practice of politics in liberal democracies. And when you arrive in parliament, it is really brought home to you very powerfully. Everyone you meet, every member of parliament, every MP and senator and their staff, all of them will have a different set of values, a different set of life experiences and of opinions. And the whole point of a parliament is to protect and defend the right of every member of parliament who, in an electoral democracy, represents a body of public opinion to hold and express their views. Respect for the right of people to hold and express a view, whether it be the craziest left-wing uh, person in the Greens or the left-wing of the Labor Party, or Pauline Hanson, doesn't matter. Respect for the right of everyone who comes to the parliament to hold and, and express their views is the very pith and substance of the way parliament works, and it doesn't equate with respect for their views themselves. In fact, the very point of parliament is to have a contentious environment in which those different views reflecting different areas of public opinion contend. And so I would argue that two of the qualities that make for a successful political practitioner, though are not universally to be seen in, in political practitioners, are intellectual humility, the acknowledgement that somebody else with a different life experience and a different frame, a framework of values from yourself might have utterly different shocking views that are shocking and confronting to you. And it follows therefrom civility. In a very contentious environment, the willingness, if not to accept, then at least to tolerate the fact that other people have different views from your own. It is a mark, in my view, of incivility and of a poor practitioner that somebody dislikes a person personally because they dislike their political views. That to me seems the very definition of incivility. The next point, the fifth point I want to make to you is this. Don't mistake the theatre of the parliamentary chamber for the substance of politics. The theatre really matters because it's very important that people in the community see those who represent their opinion do so passionately and they, they do see 
the clash of ideas embodied in sometimes in the clash of personalities. So I'm not saying that the theatre doesn't matter. It does. But it is, in a sense, the smallest part of the art of the practice of politics. And a lot of it is very contrived. Famously, when um, they were respectively the managers of government and opposition business in the House of Representatives um, during the days of the Gillard government, Anthony Albanese and Christopher Pine were great friends and they would meet behind the uh, speaker's chair to work out the way the business of the day was going to be handled. And I'm, I think I'm allowed to tell the story, uh, but I will anyway. Christopher told me once that uh, Albo was um, very, very upset and distressed because the government was falling apart and he's, quite a, he's actually quite a tender and emotional person, Anthony Albanese, and he was on the verge of tears. And Christopher, out of... Um, out of um, sight from anyone, grabbed him by the shoulders, shook him and said, come on, Elbow, come on, Elbow, hold, put yourself together. We've got to go out and do our show. And he gathered himself, regained his composure, off they went and had a very theatrical argument across the, uh, the table of the House of Representatives. That happens all the time, by the way. I mean, maybe not quite as um, uh, interestingly as, as the case I've just given you, but that happens all the time that there, there are human relationships between political opponents, which are not part of the theatre, and an acknowledgement that a lot of what is said in the chamber is theatre. Not all of it, but a lot of it. But just as important, in fact, more important than what happens in the chamber is what happens in committees of the parliament, where the members and senators work together. And I often thought when I was a senator, if only the public could see particularly committees that meet in camera behind closed doors, if only the public could see the complete lack of partisanship of these politicians who are working together to try and sort out a, a, the best outcome in an area of policy before it becomes part of the theatre, then they would have an entirely different view of the way politics operates. What happens in Cabinet, which, of course, is confidential, is important. What happens in the party room, or the caucus, as the Labor Party calls it, is more important than what happens on the Chamber of Parliament, which is so often, just as I said before, contrived. What happens in ministers' offices, in conversations between ministers, between ministers and the Prime Minister, between ministers and their staff, in deciding on a particular course of action, all of that is part of political practice. So, as observers of Parliament, as I'm sure you all are, never get the impression that what you see broadcast in the chamber, and particularly question time, which is the epitome, the apex of the theatre, is what it's all about. It follows from that also always to remember, certainly in Australia, that most things are not controversial. Most of what, for example, ministers do are largely administrative. Most areas of public policy are settled. 
there is a higher degree of consensus in Australia than I found in the United Kingdom, for example. So although political disputes are very vigorously contested, as they ought to be, the agenda that defines the contest is but a relatively small subset of the whole agenda of public policies and public administration. Next, in my view, it's not a view universally shared, but in my view, we should not regard controversy as failure. In fact, the opposite is true because where there is difference between the different sides of politics, between government and opposition, on the things they care most about, that is where the most intense controversy will be found. Think, for example, of the debate that we've had in Australia for more than 10 years now about energy policy. When I was your age, the Whitlam government was in office. And one of its lasting legacies was the comprehensive public health insurance scheme it introduced. That was intensely contested, intensely contested. The fact that there is a lot of controversy over a topic doesn't mean that one side has failed and the other side has succeeded. It is merely the product of the intensity of the feeling about the issue. Now, not everybody would go as far as Tony Abbott, who used to say it was one of his um, mantras, if you want to draw attention to an issue, start a fight, um, which he did very effectively in bringing down the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd government. But nevertheless, controversy is not failure. Conversely, notoriety is not success. There are some politicians who love to be on the television, in the newspaper, in the media. Their day is not complete unless they see themselves somewhere in the electronic print or social media. That is, in my view, a dangerous vanity. The most important things you do will often not be publicly noticed at all, at least not for many years. When, as the Attorney General, I was responsible for ASIO and domestic national security, a lot of what ASIO did was never in the public arena, nor should it have been. Some of the most important things I feel I ever did Nobody knows about, or well, that's not true, but not very many people know about because of their very nature, they were activities that shouldn't have been in the public domain. The ninth point I want to make is this. Politics can become an obsessive activity. And one thing all politicians should always remember but almost always forget is that most people are not as interested in what they're doing as they are. 
the hermetically sealed, almost literally hermetically sealed environment of Parliament House. It's like, you know, mixing my metaphors, like a petri dish. I mean, it's it's that generates and germinates unhealthy bacilli. Um, it tends to promote obsession. People who've worked in that building for years, and there are some who work in it for decades, I myself worked in it for 18 years, do inevitably come to think that what happens in the intensity of the, that environment or as a product of the intensity of that environment is the most important thing in the world. I remember one occasion when one of my advisors ran into my office and said almost breathlessly, there's been an amendment to the Senate standing orders. And I said, okay, well, calm down. I mean, I don't think the world's about to end because they've amended the Senate standing orders. But little things, internal things, process-driven things can assume a preternatural significance. And it's very dangerous. Um, and it is reinforced by the remoteness of Parliament. And what, and this is my next point, my 10th point, I think, what makes the matter Im that immeasurably worse is what I would describe as the escalator effect. The higher up the pecking order you go, the more remote you become. And the more susceptible... The more people want to flatter you, the more people think you're important, the more they're inclined to flatter you and tell you what you want to hear, which is very, very dangerous. Flattery of important and powerful people is a hugely dangerous but sometimes very art artfully practised phenomenon. The person, as you become more and more cut off because you are further and further up the pecking order, the person you most need is the person who will tell you what you don't want to hear, not the person who will tell you flatteringly, will flatteringly reinforce what you are inclined to think. At the level of the Prime Minister, it is terrible, or it can be, which was why prime ministers of all people, or presidents, no doubt, need the person beside them who will always have the gumption to tell them that they are wrong. Next point. The system basically works, but it works best if people both from the same side of the aisle and equally importantly on opposite sides of the aisle can deal with each other in a, in a trusting manner. The tales and the headlines of treachery and double dealing and backstabbing are legion, of course. But in the day-to-day -day business of government, 
most important lubricant is trust. And if ever there is an environment in which people who can be trusted and people who can't be, people who are straightforward and people who frankly are liars are identified and politely accommodated but avoided, it is in Parliament. In any profession, I'm sure that's the case. In any business, in any walk of life, I'm sure that's the case. But no more so, there is not an environment in which that is more the case than the political environment. Next point. When you're in, par in Parliament, in politics, certainly in Australia, time is not your friend because you're not there for very long. I was in Parliament for 18 years and the length of my career was slightly less than three times as long as the average political career. Now, admittedly, I was in the Senate, so because of the six-year term, senators tend to be around for longer than members of the House of Representatives. But political careers, especially in Australia, are very brief. Scott Morrison is finished. He was only elected in 2007. Malcolm Turnbull left Parliament in 2018. He was only elected in 2004. Anthony Albanese is the long, have, has had the longest pre-prime ministerial gestation of anyone since John Howard, having been elected in 1996. It's a particular feature of the Australian system where we don't have, as they do in the United Kingdom, a big backbench of men and women who have been there for decades, who have never aspired to ministerial office, who are the chairs of parliamentary committees or influential, literally, elder statesmen, whose role as such is respected. In Australia, the pressures of the political parties are such that unless you're a minister after a couple of terms, you're out. Once you've been a minister, you're finished. Now, that's fine. Those are the rules of the game in Australia on both sides. But it does mean that the velocity, the velocity of political events is foreshortened. Time is not your friend for another reason as well when you are in high office, for example, if you're a cabinet minister. And that is because you are just so busy. There is so much to do and you do not have the luxury of time to read around the problem. When I practised at the bar and I was writing an opinion, I would read deeply into the case law and write an opinion with a degree of leisure of time. When a judge hears a case and reserves his judgment, he or she might take months to deliver the judgment and have the benefit of reading all the relevant precedents, studying closely the transcript of the evidence and composing a carefully reasoned 
elegantly phrased judgment. A minister can't do that. The pressure of events is such that decisions are demanded, if not instantly, though sometimes almost instantly, without anything like the opportunity to read as widely around the issue as one would wish, or at least I would, would have wished to have done. And what that means in a practical sense is two things. First of all, you become extremely reliant on two groups of people to do that thinking for you, to filter it to you. One is the public service, your department, and the other is your personal staff who have different roles, your personal staff, their loyalty is to you. The department, their loyalty is essentially to the government of the day, nominally, but, but really to due process. But through those two filters, you rely on a lot of other people, some of them in the department unknown to you, to think about the problems that you would have liked to have thought about yourself. The other consequence, and you'll remember I said earlier that Politics is not a purely rational activity. The other consequence is that increasingly you rely less on carefully articulated reasoning in decision-making and more on intuition. I know it's a rather remote, it might seem a rather remote comparison, for those of you who are lawyers or law students may be familiar with a lecture that Sir Owen Dixon, once the Chief Justice of Australia, gave called Jesting Pilot. And in that lecture, which was to the Australian Medical Association, he compared the way in which the barrister's mind works with the way in which the surgeon's mind works. And the point he made was that whereas the barrister or the lawyer has the luxury of time to think through a problem with tremendous care and thoroughness, when a medical emergency arises, what the surgeon must do is rely upon an apparatus of, a, of instinct or intuition acquired by years of experience to deal with an immediate emergency there and then, without the luxury of time. It's somewhat similar for a decision maker, certainly for a minister. I remember one occasion when I was the attorney and a decision had to be made on a, a very pressing issue that arose very suddenly. And um, the Prime Minister wanted to know my view pretty much straight away. And I got a few of my staff around and because and, uh, I like to toss ideas around with those who were my closest advisors. And one particular member of my staff who was a very gifted but very thorough person, when I expressed my tentative conclusion, thought for a short while and said, I can think of, of 11 things that are problematic about that. And I said, that's fine, but we've got until 11 o'clock to make the decision and it's now 25 to 11, so we don't have the luxury of analysing each of those things. 
Time when you are a decision maker, when you're a minister, is not your friend either. The next observation, and I'm coming to the end of my list, I would make is this. I think because time is not your friend in, a, in terms of the longevity of career sense, you should always play the long game. Now, that might sound paradoxical, but what I mean is this. For a lot of politicians, for some prime ministers, there is obsessive attention to what plays on the front page of tomorrow morning's newspaper or on the six o'clock news. That's fine. That's important. But I always took the view that really what matters in the long run is what you leave behind. And what matters most is what you achieve, not what's in tomorrow's newspapers. Unpopularity, controversy, um, bad editorial commentary is neither here nor there in the long run as long as you leave behind what you want to leave behind. And obviously you'd prefer to steer that with as little controversy and contention as possible, but if it matters, the controversy, the contention, the denunciation of, the, of, the, of usually the tabloid media is neither here nor there in the long run. You should always play the long game. You shouldn't play the long game quite as manically as Tony Abbott played the long game, who, a bit like Coriolanus, was so firm in his views about um, the, the, the moral rightness of his position, that positions that he actually thought that being unpopular and being attacked in the media was the truest proof to him that he was on the right track. So you, so you don't want to do that. But the ephemera of politics, including what we might gently call the negative ephemera of politics, should be absolutely irrelevant to you. Next, I guess it follows from the last point. You should spend your political capital wisely, partly because, as I said, you don't have much time, and partly because during the course of a career, depending on how you go, you may develop more or less political capital. But when you leave, you can't take it with you. I decided years before I left Parliament to retire at the next opportunity after I turned 60. And I turned 60 in 2017. And I had quite a few credits in the bank, I thought. So I decided in that year to spend most of my political capital on the issue of marriage equality, which had been terribly contentious inside the Liberal Party and between the Liberal Party and the National Party, and was an issue that the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull both supported but didn't want to know about because it was nothing but trouble. And I decided to spend 
my political capital on that issue, knowing that I was leaving at the end of the year, and I'm glad I did. And that brings me to my last point. To avoid the curse of Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell, some of you may have heard of, was a very, very uh, significant British Prime Minister of the middle part of the 20th century. Very controversial, very right-wing. But he made a famous observation once. All political careers end in failure. Well, his certainly did. Most do. It doesn't matter how eminent you are, whether you're Winston Churchill or Margaret Thatcher or John Howard or Bob Hawke or whoever you are, if you hang around too long and don't get out when you can, then you will make an involuntary exit, which is why if it's achievable and you can face down the human instinct of never wanting to leave, going out at a time of your choosing and on your own terms, hard though it is to do, is certainly the least painful way of making an exit. Thank you. By the way, I'm conscious I haven't said much about diplomacy. I hope you weren't thinking this was all going to be, you know, Metnick and Henry Kissinger and all that stuff. So um, if you want to ask any questions about diplomacy, please do. Um, thank you very much for your uh, contribution today. Um, I just had a question about what do you think the Liberal Party needs to do now to make itself a sort of a party of government again? into the future or where do you see the future of the Liberal Party going or where do you think it needs to go? Uh, well, it's, you won't be surprised to hear that I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, I think what an opposition needs to do in the period immediately after it gets thrown out of government is to hold itself together and to avoid falling apart and splitting all over the place. Now, I think the result for the Liberal Party was terrible at the election, particularly the loss of so many of its traditional seats to the so-called Teals. The result for the Labor Party, by the way, was rather camouflaged by that. It was a terrible result for the Labor Party too, but in the end, I mean, only one side, it's a ultimately binary and the Labor Party won. But I think in the short term, what the Liberal Party and the coalition need to do is hold themselves together and be united. And my very early reading, it's only a few couple of months, really, but my very early reading is that Dutton is doing that. Dutton is in a better position, uh, for example, than Brendan Nelson was when last, the last time the Liberal Party got thrown out of office because Brendan was not able to hold the show together and he had at least one very uh, um, belligerent rival breathing down his neck. Um, I think Dutton is being pretty ju judicious. Uh, he said he won't attend the Jobs Summit. I think that was the right call because those summits are only a showcase for the government. 
Uh, he's given the government total bipartisanship on China, which is also the right thing to have done. And he has left the door open, but um, kept his his options open on the voice to parliament, which again, I think is the right thing to have done. So I think in the short, in the immediate term, the, uh, the, the, the opposition is holding itself together. Um, and in the end, it's governments that lose elections, not oppositions that win them. In three years time, when the cost of living is enormous, the increase in the cost of living are enormous. And Albanese is coming under more pressure from Shorten and Plibersek, both of whom want his job. If Dutton can have kept the Liberal Party and the coalition in opposition together and looking like a sensible group of people, um, then I think the next election is um, something that you wouldn't write off from the Liberal Party's point of view at this point. Awesome. Thank you so much once again. Um, for a room of people who are probably looking at getting into politics or diplomacy or working in ASIO or any kind of government organisation, if you had any advice you could give any of us, um, either subjects to study at uni, learn a language, stuff like that, anything you could that we could start start doing now if we want to start working in those industries, that'd be awesome. Well, I mean, when you say politics, diplomacy in ASIO, they're sort of di different activities, yeah. but I kind of get your, sure, I, I get your vibe that you want to be involved in public affairs. Um, and uh, and maybe national security. Um, I think that you're doing the right course for a start. You need a good grounding. Don't be put off, by the way, of these people who say that the generic humanities degree is not worth it. Worth it. I mean, I did three degrees, two law degrees, and one um, honours degree in politics. My honours degree in politics was far away the most useful, far away the most useful, because um, what the world needs the moment is looking for our intelligent, adaptable generalists. Specialists, sure, but at the moment, the prizes go to the intelligent, adaptable generalists. Um, what agencies like ASIO look for, among other things, is competency and, and serious-mindedness. If you want to get into representative politics, um, do you want a political party? And I mean, there's an enormous amount of extremely tedious um, sort of things you have to do for years to get to the point where you get pre-selected. But anyway, there you go. You, you, you sort of get the glory at the, at the end. Um, diplomacy. What I would say about diplomacy is this. Um, it's not as glamorous as it's cracked up to be. Um, institutionally, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Canberra is increasingly on the losing side of a turf war with the International Division of PMNC. And a lot of the smartest people are going to PMNC and ONI of the Office of uh, uh, National Intelligence. So if you're thinking of, with an international focus, don't just think of DFAT. Thank you very much. Thank you again for speaking to us, George, and sharing your wisdom. I was um, just going to ask a question about diplomacy, specifically relating to Australia's relationship with China. Now, um, obviously, Australia's got a lot of kind of trade ties and 
its exports are like reasonably dependent on on China's demand. Yet at the same time, it seems like the West and China are um, in the midst of a deteriorating relationship uh, diplomatically. How do you um, propose that Australia can both ensure its uh, economic and diplomatic stability um, in the face of these competing objectives? Well, that's the great task of Australian foreign policy. It has been for years, by the way, but it's become much more acute, obviously, in the last year or so. Um, don't forget that notwithstanding the intense diplomatic tensions, China is still by far Australia's biggest trading partner. We have a free trade agreement with China, which people forget about. Don't forget that although there have been some sectors of the economy that have been savagely targeted by the Chinese, most sectors, most of the um, uh, sectors that export to China have been left alone. So the Chinese have targeted red wine, they've targeted coal, they've targeted barley, they've targeted student services, they've targeted tourism, uh, they've targeted beef. Um, they haven't, to any significant degree, targeted critical minerals because they need them. They haven't targeted iron ore because they need iron ore. 67% of the iron ore imported by China comes from Western Australia. Um, so I think we need to, to, to contextualise the problem I think the new government has handled um, the relationship with China pretty well, frankly. You need a balance between standing your ground and engaging in bellicose rhetoric, and I think Albanese and Wong have got the balance better than Morrison and Maurice Payne did, to be honest. Um, and I think prosecute, uh, standing up for your values without compromise, without giving gratuitous provocation is the surest path. Thank you very much, Mr. Brandis. Um, my question pertains to, you spoke earlier about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, which Prime Minister Albanese made an announcement about the proposed sort of referendum question and what it would look like. And he also promised for it to be delivered by the end of his term, at least this term in government. Do you think Albanese is following the right track with this, giving a very general question and trying to avoid what caused the previous um, referendum for the Republic sort of to fall apart? Or do you think that there's a better way forward that the government should be following? Well, um, I don't know if you saw, I wrote a column for the City Morning Herald about this about two weeks ago. Um, I think he's got to publish what he wants the public to adopt. If he doesn't, he'll lose. If he doesn't, he'll lose. Because I can, I can, I would bet my house. If he doesn't publish what he intends to ask the parliament to adopt, the opposition will oppose the referendum. And he's just got to do it. I mean, you know, it's it, it, and he's worried about. It. He's virtually said this. He's worried about. Oh, you know, the devil in. Uh, they'll say the devil's in the detail. Well, you know, any government that tries to get a referendum up has got to um, overcome that argument. But a much more lethal argument will be don't vote for it, for it if you don't know what it is. Now, he's, it's, I mean, he can do this, by the way. I mean, he hasn't said he won't. He hasn't said he will either. And I think he's, I mean, he's, he's quite a nice guy, Anthony Albanese. And I think he, no, no, I know him quite well. 
And he's, I, I don't mind him at all. Um, but, so I don't say this with any political malice, um, but I, I think that if he if he gets scared off by the devil in the detail argument, he's going to fail. Yeah, well, I, I guess obligatory thanks for the wonderful lecture. Um, I was wondering if you might have a few things to say on, I guess, the calibre of intellect or of talent that is promoted in our system to parliament and whether in this increasingly complex and nonlinear world, both in politics and in technology and economics, um, our system might not be producing the right sort of decision maker. Well, people have always said that, um, you know, and, you know, I'm a big believer in the old rule that, you know, the rule of the, the country, that the, 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 the world is governed by those who show up. I mean, you know, I, I know lots of really, really smart people, really smart people who would be terrible in politics. I mean, they would just be awful. So as I said in one of my, so the, the, one of the points I made, it's not an intellectual activity. Um, you know, I can think of, you know, any one of the high court judges, for example, who would be smarter than probably anybody in the parliament at the moment, every one of whom would be terrible as politicians. Um, so I think, oddly enough, the system does, because the system only lets people through who really want it and who have the grit and toughness to persevere to get to the top and, as a result, learn the, I talked about intuition rather than you know, ratiocination is the, the main intellectual skill of, in politics or the main sort of decision-making skill. I, I think that the, 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 the people that who tend to self-select are the people from whom the um, political leadership of the country should be drawn because if people don't want to do it, they're not going to do it very well. Uh, thank you, George, for the lecture. Um, my question is, what is the highest virtue that should govern the role of the politician? That's a good question. Um, I think ultimately a commit... I mean, this might sound like a cliche, but bear with me. A, a commitment to the public good is the highest virtue, but that sounds so bland and anodyne, a statement. A commitment to the public good expressed and articulated in accordance with the values that you honestly believe in. You know, the, the worst sin in politics is hypocrisy, the, in my view. The, the, so that conversely, the virtue that I would most admire, and this is a party political observation, of course, is people who dedicate themselves to a set of values that they genuinely and in good faith believe are best for the public good and can articulate and persuade the public to come along with them. Thank you very much for coming along. You've spoken a bit about tribalism and polarisation tonight, and that's something that Machiavelli also writes about um, in his discourses on Livy. Uh, and... He reflects that the, the tumults between the different classes in Rome, for example, are a great source of dynamism. 
and basically beneficial for their own republic. So there's that good side to tribalism, which you also talked about with the theatre of, of Parliament. But there's also the negative side of tribalism and of division, and we might see that in the US at the moment. And that's increasingly becoming an important question, is, is how do you get the benefits of, of disagreement and of conflict and debate without the, the downsides of division? Well, it's a, a good observation. I mean, to which I would say two things. First of all, it under, underlines the importance of civility. Now, I haven't been to the United States for years, but obviously I follow American politics and read the American newspapers and magazines. It seems to me that people have stopped listening to each other. They are just shouting at each other. And that is not a healthy civic culture. In Australia, even though we have intense political debates and sometimes they get quite personal, I don't think we've come even close to the point at which we're just shouting at each other and not listening to each other. The second thing I'd say, and this kind of follows from that, is, as you probably know, I am a very strong believer in freedom of speech. I really, I, I, I think cancel culture and all of that stuff is utterly, utterly invidious. And one of the points I made in my talk, you don't have to agree with someone to respect the fact that they have a right to their point of view. And in a good society, they should be listened to with civility, not condonement. You don't have to respect their point of view, but you have to respect the proposition, which is ultimately an egalitarian proposition, that every citizen has an equal right to their voice in the public space. I think that's been, been lost in America, or being lost, and I think it's threatened by those in other countries, including Australia, who just want to shout people down who they don't, don't agree with. Um, thank you very much for your lecture. Um, this evolving situation involving Scott Morrison swearing himself into, I guess, secret portfolios. Um, first of all, your general thoughts, but more specifically, um, what do you think, I guess, do you think this would damage in a future referendum on the Republic, uh, the, the cause defending constitutional monarchy? Well, the answer to your second question is no, um, because, I mean, people have tried to drag David Hurley into this, but, I mean, that's silly. The Governor-General, like the Queen, has to act on the advice of his ministers. You're probably familiar with that epigram of Walter Badgett's that the right, the, the right of a monarch is to advise, to encourage and to warn I don't know whether the Governor-General sort of asks Scott Morrison whether he had legal advice about it. He wouldn't have been stepping beyond his constitutional boundaries if he'd merely made the inquiry. Um, but I don't know whether that happened or not, and I don't think we ever will know. Um, but I think it's got nothing to do with the Governor-General, basically. Um, and, you know, the future of whether Australia is a constitutional monarchy or a republic. As to the main part of the question, I just don't know. I mean, what, I mean, uh, and the thing that this is not a particularly original observation. It's what everybody's been saying. But why didn't he tell people? Because I mean, you know, the, everybody, everything went crazy during the pandemic, and 
we had this Mickey Mouse National Cabinet, all this that stuff. And I'm sure if Morrison had said, look, you know, these are extraordinary times, we're taking unprecedented constitutional measures, we've got a National Cabinet, that's never happened before, I'm adopting the belts and braces precaution of swearing myself in as a sort of backstop minister in certain key portfolios, I suspect people would have sort of yawned and said, oh, ho-hum, that's just an administrative thing. So it was the fact that it was not disclosed and not disclosed to some of the ministers that I just can't, I just don't get it. And I'd love to know what PM&C's advice was. I mean, if ever there was a occasion when the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet should have said, whoa, just, you know, <laughs> uh, it's that. Hi, George. Thank you for speaking today. I really enjoyed all of your points. I just wanted to ask you a more personal question. Um, you said that we are governed by the people who show up. Um, what is it that made you want to show up? Well, I I think I was a vocational politician, um, and by which I mean I it was what I really wanted to do since I was a teenager. And then I sort of had a diversion from that course for a long time when I was a barrister because I really, really enjoyed being a barrister. And I was having a lot of fun and I was making a lot of money and I thought this is a really good career. And But I'd re re retained a residual interest in politics and I was a member of the Liberal Party. And to tell you the truth, what happened was one day at the end of 1999, the then president of the Liberal Party rang me up and said, um, Senator Perra, who was an older senator, was about to announce his retirement and um, would you consider running for the vacancy? And, I mean, he wasn't giving it to me, I mean, but it so happened in the rather complicated sort of internal factional politics of the Liberal Party at the time, people who would have supported me happened to be in control. So if I'd said yes, they would have got the numbers for me. Um, and I agonised quite a bit over it. It was a big thing to do. I was 42. Um, and I decided in the end, I said, look, you know, until a few years ago, that's all you wanted to do. Now, you've kind of been offered this on a plate if you want it. Um, in 25 years' time, when you review your life, if you say no when it's offered to you, aren't you always going to think you're a bit, bit of a chicken, really? So I decided to do it, and I'm glad I did. So you obviously come back from being High Commissioner in the United Kingdom and spent some time over there. So obviously there's a uh, kind of leadership uh, election going on for seeing who's kind of going to be the, the Prime Minister. Uh, between Rishi Sunuk and um, Liz Truss. Hmm. Um, what are your own kind of views, having kind of experienced political culture in England as to their kind of direction of their leadership or between those particular two candidates as well? Well, um, the short answer is that Liz Truss is going to win. Um, the, uh, I mean, I've, I've always thought she'd win. Um, and my prediction has been verified by every whole of the Conservative Party members who voted in the election. Last poll I saw a week and a half ago, she was 34 points ahead. Um, and the reason I've always thought she'd win is because she talks Tory. 
I mean, she's she 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 reaches. She knows the buttons to press. She reaches them in a way that they find relatable. Whereas Rishi um, is, I know them both, but I know Liz Trust a lot better than I know Rishi Sunak. Um, Rishi is just a bit too perfect, you know. I I, I wrote a I, one of the things I've been doing since I've been back is every fortnight writing a column for the Sydney Morning Herald. And my I wrote a column on this very topic. Um, four weeks ago, and my views were summed up by the headline that I wrote for the column, which uh, Rishi Sunak's nickname, because he's kind of got movie star looks, is Dishy Rishi. And the headline of my column was Rishi is Dishy, but trust is true blue. I think that's the position. I think that he is just too polished, too shiny, too perfect, too... Um, uh, one of the issues that's come in this up in this campaign is that he wears Prada shoes. I mean, whoever let him get out in Prada shoes? Um, so whereas Liz Truss, who I, as I say, I know very well, is just kind of extremely easy to, she's very relatable. And she also has picked his weak spot. That is that he is the highest taxing chancellor in peacetime in British history. And that is that is poison to the ears of the rank and file members of the Conservative Party. That's why she's promising tax cuts, and everybody, all the smart economists are saying, no, 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 don't do that. You'll feel inflation, make it even worse. But she is narrow casting to one hundred and sixty thousand Tories who hate paying tax. Are you pessimistic or um, optimistic on the outlook for America? over the coming years? Gee, that's how you ask all the hard questions. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think America's in a terrible place for all the reasons we've been discussing. Um, I'm myself expecting Trump to be the next president. Um, I am. I think that um, whoever the Democrats run, I mean, it's not going to be Biden. I mean, Biden has to say he's running again because the moment he says he's not, he's a dead duck, right? So don't inter- don't misinterpret the fact that he's saying he'll run again. Of course he won't. Um, and then Kamala Harris is apparently very unpopular. And, and, and Kamala Harris was forced on by, by the Obamas. Um, and who else is there in the Democratic Party? I mean, Barnaby Joyce, of all people, said to me the other day, well, the person they should choose is Pete Buttigieg, uh, the Transport Secretary. Um but I think that it'll be Trump for the Republicans or a Trump person. Um, and I think Trump will make his announcement that he's running between uh, probably strategically just after the midterms in November. So I'm not optimistic. <laughs> okay. Um, just back to what you're saying about ministers not having time on their side. And you spoke about like how a surgeon, when an emergency comes up, they kind of use like the intuition and years of experience behind them to kind of make that decision. If that's how ministers are making decisions most of the time, do you think that's sustainable? And like, how do you think we can um, make decisions better given the 
pressures that ministers obviously face? Well, first of all, it was ever thus. I mean, it's always been like that. And don't forget, ministers sit at the top of a pyramid of you know people who who do filter and you know eliminate bad options and and, and present them with a choice. So now I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad system, but what I am saying is um, that ultimately it's not a process of deep study; it's a process of good instincts. There is a famous true story which I love about. Benjamin Disraeli, who was the Tory Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the 1860s. And before he was um, a member of parliament, he was a kind of rather fey romantic novelist and he was a complete dilettante. And the 14th Earl Grey, who was his rival, wanted, was Prime Minister and wanted to stitch him up by giving him a really a job that he was bound to mess up. So he made him Chancellor of the Exchequer. And Disraeli, who couldn't even add up, um, was horrified. And as the anecdote goes, Earl Grey said to Benjamin Disraeli, don't worry, they give you the figures. <laughs> you know, there's a bit of that, that, you know, in, in, in any minister, you are ultimately in the hands of people. If, if, if you're a terrible minister, you're still in the hands of people who meant to know what they're doing. So obviously speaking a lot on statecraft for the election, um, I had the quick question on what role you think factions play in an Australian political sphere, I guess from both parties. Well, I've got a slightly um, a sl a view that might surprise you. I think factions are good. And the reason factions are good is because they regularise things. But the political cultures are the two main parties are very, very different. So in the Labor Party, the factions are very formalised. And, I mean, the Labor Party is basically a confederation of factions. And because the, the, the rules of the game are settled, um, it's it makes the Labor Party, unless they're having a blood feud, it makes the Labor Party you know, pretty easy to run. I, I think, I mean... Rudd didn't understand it, and he's completely screwed it up. Um, Alba understands it extremely well. And one of the reasons I think he'll do okay um, is that he's very practised in the art of managing the Labor factions. Now, I mean, in a way, the Labor factions are like, you know, the, 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 the mafia, the mafiosi dons in New York. In, have you read The Godfather? You know, it's, you know, they're basically rivalrous sort of sub-governments who only occasionally go to war and assassinate each other, but usually they get on with business. Um, in the Liberal Party, where there isn't a, a well-developed faction system, it's a lot messier. I mean, the Liberal Party is like, you know, one great big unhappy family. Um, and the Labor Party is like New York in the days of the, of the Mafia. I mean, the latter is more efficient, actually. So the Liberal Party, particularly when there's a brawl in it, is much more anarchic because there isn't that that degree of regularity and system. And so happy with that. We might call it a day lecture thank so you. far. So uh, thank you very much, George Brandis, for um, coming and with us. Statecraft Winter Lecture. I say, if you're not already a member of the PPE Society, then become a member of the PPE Society and give another thanks to Adept Economics as well for chipping in a bit of money to um, sponsor the event. So, yeah, and with that, we'll just say, um, again, thank you very much and be on your way.
And thanks to you, dear listener, for listening. If you've made it this far into the podcast, and it's not yet October 12, you're obviously far too invested in Pillar Talk not to be involved in the UQPP Society in some way, if you're not already. So come along to the AGM, and failing that, do consider applying for a sub-executive position for 2023. Applications for those are open until the end of the year, and they include editorial positions on the Statecraft team, positions helping out with this very podcast, and positions organising all kinds of academic, vocational and social events. Pillar Talk will be back shortly, as George Brandis sits down with Will and Oliver to discuss Australian national security, the rise of China, and the relationship between liberalism and conservatism, among other things. We'll see you then.